Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to episode 39 of American History 2. I'm Malcolm Craig and as usual I'm joined by my friend and colleague Mark McClay. Hello Malcolm. Uh, here we are in the summer um, of 2017, a whole 50 years after the summer we're going to be talking about today. Uh, how are you? Not bad, not bad at all. Yeah, it's thematically appropriate that we're recording uh, a podcast about the 50th anniversary of the long hot summer of 1967 in the United States during what passes for a summer over here. So, <laughs> Mark, first question, what was the long, hot summer that we're going to talk about? Well, ironically, the long, hot summer that we're going to discuss today has actually gone down in popular memory um, as <laughs> the summer of love. So, yeah, as as you're listening to me talk about race riots and violence and tension and everything throughout this podcast, have, you know, Scott McKenzie's uh, great song about ushering people to San Francisco with flowers in their hair, uh, to, you know, the Monterey Music Festival of Love and Peace and Music, you know, going over going over your head um, as we discuss it. I can, I can hear it as you speak. Yeah, no, my, my voice does tend to, to usher in those sort of notes into people's heads. Anyway, no, the, the long hot summer um, of 1967 is, is, is called that way to think of the, the extensive race riots that took place in American cities throughout the summer. Now, I'm going to use the word riots. Um, some people prefer to call them rebellions. Um, you know, saying people, you know, often African Americans were rebelling against the conditions they live in. And while I completely take that argument on board, they're more commonly referred to as riots. And it's how politicians, who I'm often going to be discussed, refer to them as well. So I'm just going to be using race riots as a shorthand. And 
more than while there's a lot of riots that go on, the main two that that really kick off are are in New York, um, New Jersey, where 26 people die in total, and the main one is in in Detroit, um, where 43 uh, people die. And the, the what the riot in Detroit is is the worst. Uh, riot since angry New Yorkers protested the draft during the Civil War. Uh, Michigan's governor, George Romney, remarked that, you know, when he was doing a flyover of Detroit, that it looked like the city had been bombed. And this really shook a lot of perceptions of what people thought was progress going on in the United States. Detroit was seen as a real success story, um, where African Americans were more likely to get high paying jobs than elsewhere. Uh, and, and Detroit really coming straight on the back of, of New York really kind of gives a sense of things battling out of control in the United States. Um, and our listeners will have heard that that clip from the NBC special and at the beginning of this podcast. And the, the, the beginning of that clip is really about appealing to people who, to white Americans to not turn their back on the cities, to, to, to not embrace the white backlash sentiment that was becoming widespread, widespread um, throughout the United States at this time. So that's the, that's the basic background. That's what the long, hot summer is. That's what we're going to be talking about. Out of sheer interest, and probably for the interest of uh, those of our followers uh, who follow meteorological history, uh, was the long, hot summer in America in 1967 actually warmer than other years? Actually, amazingly, I know the answer to this question, and the answer is no. I actually, I, I thought when I wrote an article about this, I would start the, with an opening vignette about how it wasn't actually warmer than other summers. It was actually colder, I believe, than 1965 and 1966. But, you know, common sense got the better of me, and that intro went out the window. But at least I have an answer to your question. Great, so a metaphorical long, hot summer. Yeah. So, I mean... These riots explode, uh, riots, rebellions, uprisings explode in the summer of 1967. Are these are these unique events that just come out of nowhere? Or can we see precursors in the 1960s to what's going to happen in the summer of 67? Yeah, I mean, they're definitely not unique. Um, indeed, it almost becomes a common refrain for the, for the four years in which uh, Lyndon Johnson the four summers in which Lyndon Johnson happens to be in office and from 1964 to 1968, that there are, there are common theme is rioting during those summers. In 1964, you have a, a riot in Harlem um, where, where Johnson and his Republican opponent, Barry Goldwater, they agree not to bring race into the campaign as much as possible after, after these riots to try and cool tempers. Um, the perhaps the biggest riot of all of them, perhaps even bigger than the, in terms of its impact, its psychological impact, than the than the ones we're going to discuss about 1967 is the Watts riot, which takes place in Los Angeles in 1965. Which, you know, we'll, we'll come back and chat about this a bit later. But um, yeah, it really it has a profound change in American politics, and really sort of you you, you can trace the. The civil rights movement as this really positive, wonderful, nonviolent thing that people are starting to get bored with, and the tailing off into different fragments after after Watts, and and then the the after nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight, you'll have um, after the Martin Luther King is after Martin Luther King is assassinated, um, you know Washington D.C. is in flames, um, and with hundreds of other cities um, experiencing disorder um, after that riot. And indeed, in 1967 alone, there were 164 disorders and riots. 
And between the years 1964 and 1968, there were at least 329 significant outbreaks of violence in 257 cities. And so, so rioting by this point is sort of the most visible element of what becomes known as the urban crisis in 1960s America. And this is kind of a combination of the rioting, supposed rising crime that's going on, or those, those statistics are debated, the poor conditions, the stubborn poverty, and the, the white flight where, where white people are abandoning the cities for the suburbs and taking their tax uh, money with them. So, so cities are often going broke. And the urban crisis and, and race riots in general are kind of up there with Vietnam as the reason why, you know, Lyndon Johnson will end up uh, having to resign, or sorry, not run for re-election uh, in 1968, such was his presidency almost destroyed um, by, by, by the rioting and Vietnam. So, I mean, so from our perspective in two, 2017, there seems to be a lot of similarities with what has happened in America over the last few years. I mean, particularly uh, the events in, in Ferguson following the shooting of Michael Brown by a white police officer. And obviously, I mean, this has been exposed by investigations by organisations such as the Justice Department, which, I mean, reveals a fairly deep-seated legacy of institutionalised racist practices in that particular police department and also more widely in other police departments and institutions uh, in law enforcement throughout the United States. And, you know, there seems to be, a, this is one of the core explanations for for what happened in, in Ferguson and people's reaction to the shooting uh, of Michael Brown. Were the, the riots of the 1960s, did, were they sparked for similar reasons from what we've seen in recent years? Yeah, the, the factor of like even perceived or even real police brutality is definitely, you know, central to, in many ways, often starting the riots. Uh, you know, many of the biggest riots of the 1960s are sparked by arrests or police behavior towards African-Americans. And that includes, you know, the Harlem, Watts, Newark, Detroit, that, that I've all mentioned in varying degrees are kicked off um, for that reasons. But there are many other factors, um, just like there are today. Um, but but perhaps even more factors than, than it exists today. For, for example, you know, the we all think of the civil rights era as when segregation is is taken as as you know tackled by by the federal government, but it tackles segregation in the south. Whereas with, with your segregation is written in law. Whereas in the north, you've got a, in the cities in particular, you've got a lot of housing segregation, for example, which is sort of unofficial ordinances of where we don't let African Americans move into these prosperous neighborhoods. You've got job discrimination where you know you, the African Americans aren't hired. Um, you know, they're always at the back of the queue in terms of being hired. You've got poverty rate, you know, the unemployment rates between black and white Americans are vastly different. You've got the fact that the, the prosperity of the 1960s and Johnson pursuing his great society and the civil rights acts and the war on poverty and everything sort of raises these expectations that something's going to happen, you know, life is going to get better. And then, it, well, it doesn't really Um and as the decade wears on, you've got an increased assertiveness on behalf of African Americans. You know, at the beginning of the decade, you have figures like Malcolm X already, um, you know, in black nationalism and be, you know, being more assertive. And then as the decade goes on, you have black power advocates like Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, 
really sort of being, you know, we're not going to take this anymore. We're not going to stand and wait for gradual change. We're not, we're not even going to follow the route of Martin Luther King's nonviolence. Um, and and also, I mean, like while rising crime is seen as a huge issue in the 1960s, and you know, particularly by sort of white people in the suburbs who perceive it as a great threat, it's actually, you know, it's black Americans who are most likely to be the ones who suffer um, from a rise in violent crime. Um, so, I mean, there are so many factors that play into this. I mean, but police brutality, to come back to your original question, is definitely one of those. And these all seem factors that, that don't appear to have gone away. They still seem to be part of the the African-American experience. These issues kind of keep coming up again and again in discussions of, you know, what's happening in America in the 21st century as well. So it's interesting that these these factors are are interesting and saddening that these factors are, are still around. But given the particular political context of the, the mid-1960s, so the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, is it therefore surprising that a decade which seemingly witnessed the greatest legislative progress for African Americans coincided with the, the greatest number of, of rebellions in the cities? Well, actually, to, to go back to the 1965 Watts riots, I think they are a sort of great example of why it's not that much of a surprise that the riots took place in that context. Oh, and I think this would be a good moment to bring in a brief newsreel clip uh, regarding the Watts riots that might help give a little bit of context and illustrate uh, what you're talking about a little. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than a 100 square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. Firemen were harassed by snipers and brick-throwing hoodlums as they attempted to control the fires, many of which were left to burn themselves out. As the National Guard moved in to restore comparative calm, the losses by fire alone were put at $200 million. No attempt has yet been made to estimate the losses suffered at the hands of the looters who stole everything from liquor to playpens. So I wanted to include that clip because you can tell from the, the 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 music that is used, you know, like how Watts is. I just wanted to give a sense of how Watts is portrayed to Americans that you know it is this really scary sort of doomsday music played over the top of it. But moving on from that point, Watts it was in 1965. Similar to Detroit, actually, was sort of viewed by people outside the area as an ideal place for for African Americans to live, and the Watts riots come sort of straight after the Voting Rights Act, so that's why it's seen as a sort of surprise. There are a lot of politicians in Washington that just can't understand why it's happened after one of the greatest legislative victories for African Americans. You know, Watts has tree-lined streets, um, black unemployment isn't as bad as it is in other in other cities for African Americans. But the fact of the matter is, the unemployment is still much worse. There's job discrimination, there's housing discrimination, there's all those things I've already talked about. And indeed, in 1964, um, at the very same time that, you know, Lyndon Johnson is getting a landslide victory over Barry Goldwater, when liberalism seems at a high tide, um, Californians um, on that same day vote to repeal the Rumford Act. And the Rumford Act um, had been passed by the California legislature and it said 
that you can't discriminate in housing. You, you can't like bar African-Americans from living in a certain neighborhood. And that's put on the ballot by some private citizens in 1964 and Californians defeat it. They say, no, we want housing segregation. The very same day that, you know, they're, they're, they're giving Johnson a huge victory. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, when Obama won in 2008 on the very same day, California passes an act, pa- passes Prop 8, which bans gay marriage. It's kind of one of those things that you, you have these this dichotomy going on and it's, it's harder for historians to quite get at what's going on. And it's something I that's interesting from the point of view is, you know, we tend to associate associate segregationist practices with the Deep South and, you know, Jim Crow and all these kind of things, but they weren't just isolated in that part of America. You see them across the United States, uh, you know, in northern urban centres and western urban centres, you know, and in, you know, states like California. So, I mean, but beyond the, you know, the Civil Rights Acts, which emerged in the mid-1960s, I mean, as you've mentioned, this is the time of, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. Yeah, and we've discussed that in a previous podcast. If anyone wants to kind of listen in depth to something about the Great Society itself. You know, this I mean this era when kind of when the government is really kind of ramping up like you know, social legislation, education, healthcare, and in particular your pet research interest, the war on poverty. Where these new programs that Lyndon Johnson is really pushing forward also viewed as insufficient in not addressing the needs of a wide spectrum of Americans. Yes, I mean, uh, as you said, you know, my pet interest in the war on poverty. The war on poverty is interesting in this regard because on one hand, the Office of Economic Opportunity, which is the main sort of body um, which runs the war on poverty, clearly targets African-Americans. Despite the fact when Johnson launches the war on poverty, he tries to say it's all about poor Appalachians. But really, they're trying to help African-Americans in the cities. And some historians say this is exactly why the war on poverty fails, um, because not enough Americans will care about helping African-Americans in the cities, particularly ones who they view as rioting and being ungrateful. And also, the budget for the war on poverty is is really small. You know, it's, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, of of sort of the, of the federal government's funding, um, and there are a lot of institutions and in state and local government which get in the way of actually getting the job done and empowering poor people. And above all, the war on poverty can't provide the one thing that African Americans probably want more than anything, and that's good paying jobs. It can provide job training, but it never actually, you know, it can't provide anything. Um, you know, in in the private sector or anything, and you know that sort of healthy self respect that many view is coming with having a good, solid, well paying job, feeling like an equal member of society, being able to buy a house if you're successful in a neighbourhood that you want to. Uh, beyond the war on poverty, though, I mean, like the, a lot of the great society, you know, for, say take for example the the, the huge amount of funding that's given to education. When are you going to notice that much of a different over, difference overnight? Education funding takes a while to show any effect in people's lives. Um, so I don't think that, you know, Johnson did far too much over-promising for how things were going to turn out um, and, and is guilty of having raised the expectations. And also just beyond the great society and everything, I thought of, I saw of my own slightly wacky theory as well as to how expectations rate are, are sort of raised in the 60s and caused problems. 
I mean, this is sort of the era of television becoming, you know, in ev- almost every American household, whether you were poor or not. And, you know, television advertising, I wonder the psychological effect that that had in terms of, you know, people can watch these shows now where they see what the good life is. And I, I don't know, like, it's just a theory, but I wonder if that had anything to do with it. I might be completely wrong, though. <laughs> so post-Watts, how does Lyndon Johnson and his administration, you know, react to to this? I mean, how how did how did they respond to what's been going on? Well, in public, um, LBJ comes out and basically says that a rioter with a Molotov cocktail in his hand is basically about as as you know is doing as good for the African American as a Klansman with a sheet on, on his head. So you know, rather strong rhetoric. Um, but in private, he reflects it. He sort of says, you know, I've moved the Negro from D plus to C minus. He's still nowhere. He knows it. And he basically says that if he was an African-American, he'd be out there rioting too. Um, and and they sort of... So does, does that imply that, that Lyndon Johnson, despite his... I mean, he's a Texan, his you know, Southern origins. Does he have a certain amount of sympathy, despite his language, have a certain amount of sympathy for... African American communities. Yes, I I, th- I think that's fair to say that. But John Johnson's interesting just because well Johnson's interesting like and he's basically got this split personality for almost everything in his life and and one day he could be as 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 racist as the day is long whereas the next day he could be you know the biggest proponent there's ever been for for in the White House especially for for you know for African American rights and trying to lift up the poor and everything like that. So it's so hard to talk about Johnson and his generalities because you have to acknowledge the sort of you know there's there's a, I mean well to try and put it I mean he was devastated after Watts but not just because he was he was devastated for the African American community. He was devastated for himself. <laughs> you know, he was like, I've just passed the Voting Rights Act. You know, they they, they should be so grateful, and they, they they wouldn't even answer. He wouldn't even answer phone calls from the White House when he was down at his Texas ranch while it's going on. Um, but I think like Johnson is also capable of, you know, when the, when the mood strikes him, realizing and empathizing, and you know, because he's from a poor background as well. He's and he had, throughout his career, he did show sympathy during the 1930s when he ran a New Deal program. He, you know, ran it without discrimination in a way that many others in the South didn't for poor African-Americans. So, yeah, the the, comp- the picture with LBJ as a person is very complicated. So is there another, in, in the, the aftermath of Watts, is there another kind of like, you know, burst of legislation to try and... You know, solve the issues that Watts appears to be raising, or certainly the issues that Watts is bringing to the surface. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they, they sort of redouble their efforts to revamp the cities, um, and they, they passed a program called Model Cities, uh, which was which aimed to bring, bring together loads of extra new funding and coordinate efforts to renew American cities. Um, they bring in rent supplements, which are allowed, designed to allow black Americans to sort of buy houses, nice areas, well, poor Americans, but often um, African-Americans. Um, but these programs prove incredibly controversial, much more so than other great society programs such as, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, the aid to education, all the all these kind of things, civil rights acts even. And and they're very much politically imperiled when uh, the Republican Party 
uh, make big gains in the 1966 midterm elections with the help of with, with the help of a white backlash vote, and this sort of sets up the possibility of conservative Southern Democrats being able to sort of vote with Republicans to to stop the the Northern cities getting this extra funding and help. So you mentioned there the idea of a, a white backlash, and you mentioned that at the start of the podcast as well. I mean, I think we probably all think we know what that means. But in this context, what do you mean when you talk about a white backlash? So, um, essentially, when the Watts riots take place, um, what happens is you you have this amazing thing where going before the Watts riots, the... American people are polled. They're, they're, they're polled on, you know, how, how do you feel the Johnson administration is proceeding with civil rights measures? And by a decent majority, they approve. No, they're doing the right pace. This, this Things are good. This includes Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. As soon as what's happens, this flips on its head. And all of a sudden, white Americans never get back to thinking the Johnson administration or a race, you know, or approving of, of the actions of the African-American community for the rest of the 1960s. I'm not actually sure how the polling goes thereafter. Um, and, and and you heard it in that NBC clip that we started the podcast with. That is essentially the anchor, Frank McGee, begging his audience not to have their minds closed by, you know, because they've seen the rioting in Detroit and everything, don't just think, oh, well, all we have to do is forget about these people or punish them. We have to actually help them. Um, so, so the, and a lot of white people had the attitude that, and some, some still do, that, you know, after the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, oh, well, we'll fix racism. Racism's blocked off. Don't need to do anything else anymore. And there are a huge chunk of voters, especially working class white voters, who fear black advancement. You know, they, they, they dislike the war on poverty for these reasons. They they fear that if job discrimination is abandoned, then, well, that's them that's going to lose their jobs, uh, not the middle and upper class white people who are making the laws. And I, I mean, tensions really ramp up uh, after what's... I mean, in Chicago, for example, even build a highway to separate black and white communities. Martin Luther King is, you know, famous quote about, you need, you know, Mississippians need to come to Chicago to learn how to hate um, that it's that violent, and uh, and and you've also at this time get continued white flight out, out of the cities, and uh, you know the, when I'm asked to think about white backlash, I always remember a, a clip of of the TV show Mad Men, which got a lot of things I think right about the '60s, but other things not so right. But there's uh, a great clip where the where the white wife, I think her name's Betty in the show, sort of sees the rioting on television or something about and goes, "Oh well, maybe they weren't ready for civil rights after all." Just now, sort of really position of privilege, sort of commenting um, on African Americans without much knowledge of what's going on. And there's a whole bunch of assumptions bundled up in that kind of one line. Uh, yeah. There, uh, that unfortunately we don't have time to to explore in any particular detail. Maybe one of one of these days we'll de- you know dedicate an episode or two to Mad Men and its historical context, yes. which would be interesting in and of itself. So you mentioned also that the Republicans so they make these gains in 1966 in the midterm congressional elections, partially as a result of this this white backlash against what's happening against civil rights against the rioting all that kind of thing. But, I mean, it seems a bit 
ironic that in those elections, the Republicans also managed to elect the first African-American senator since Reconstruction, you know, the decade in the 19th century after the Civil War, uh, in the form of Edward Brooke from Massachusetts. Now, this all, I mean, this all seems a bit odd. I mean, is, is there a way to square this particular circle? And, and did Brooke himself have much to say about, about the riots, given he's, you know, coming into the Senate in the aftermath of them? Yeah, so to, to answer your question about the Republicans first, so a lot of re- Republicans actually, first thing first, most Republicans aren't race-baiting, not not especially conservative at race at this point. I mean, some are, some aren't. But a lot of them actually, a lot of them aren't openly stoking the white backlash at this time. But they still benefit from the sort of loss in faith in Lyndon Johnson and the Democrats um, that the white working class in many cases sort of have have with the Democratic Party. And for example, Charles Percy will be elected as a senator in Illinois despite the fact he's quite liberal on racial issues, but his opponent was even more liberal on racial issues, so he takes he takes the flack for that. To come on to Edward Brooke, who, who, or Ed Brooke as he was known, who, who is quite a fascinating character. Oh, we're uh, using that word fascinating yeah, again. I, I said it and the alarm bells went off. <laughs> but uh, Brooke, was, uh, Brooke was born in a town that, you know, sort of said, it was, he was born right beside a town that was so segregated that, that an African-American needed a written pass to, to pass through that town. Um, he, he came from near Washington, D.C., and uh, and he would actually go on to be awarded the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom by by Barack Obama uh, before before sadly passing away in the last few years. And Brooke was a real key player in the politics of the urban crisis. And, and the media, knowing he was the only African American senator, um, so often gave him a sort of loud microphone to to voice his views. And Brooke was a Republican because partially because, you know, at this time you've still got the legacy of African-Americans being Republicans, um, but also really disliked democratic welfare programs. He he truly believed that they sort of encouraged dependency um, amongst African-Americans and sort of stopped them, um, you know, really breaking out of the cycle of poverty uh, because of that. But he also found the sort of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps sort of Ronald Reagan individualism um, approach of many of his Republican colleagues at the time woefully lacking and he mocked the idea that equality of opportunity existed for African-Americans. So he, he, he went back and forth trying to find a coherent way to get African-Americans to help themselves. And one of the things he sponsored, um, which never actually got passed, was sort of emergency employment legislation, kind of like you know, WPA, this the New Deal Work Progress Administration for the 1960s, that type of thing. And he's part of a group of moderate Republicans who hold significant power in the Senate in the last couple of years of, of, the, of the Johnson administration. So that's a fascinating bit of you know background. So now we'll finally get to the actual long, hot summer of 1967 itself. We've gone through you know, the background of the 60s and civil rights and watts and all of these things that are going on, the 66 midterm elections. So the long, hot summer of 1967 itself, you've already outlined in brief, you know, what happens, you know, the, the major events that happen in, you know, in Detroit and New York and other places around the United States. You talked about the deaths that have gone on, the damage caused, but I'd like to talk in a little bit, a little bit more detail 
about the riots themselves before we get on to looking at the fallout from the riots. So how, I mean, how did things develop and how was it reported on by the media? So my image of the, of the long hot summer of 67 is, you know, the National Guard on the streets of cities like Newark and seeing, you know, armored personnel carriers with machine guns on them, uh, heavily armed soldiers in the streets and, you know, flames kind of in the air and smoke, you know, billowing out into the, into the streets. And in some ways it looks like a scene from the Vietnam War. It looks like what we're going to see in the Tet Offensive in early 1968, a few months later, with, you know, the, the assault on the city of Hue and the attacks in Saigon and places like that. It looks like Vietnam has come home to America. There's tanks on the streets, the soldiers on the streets. People are kind of, you know, Soldiers are firing at alleged snipers all over the place. This seems a common theme, the idea that the the police and the army were being attacked by snipers and everything. This seems to be a persistent theme. How true was that? So on a, to take the snipers point last, there's still a lot of debate um, uh, on on what how, how true that is, that there, there were snipers firing on, on the on the police or on on the army. I mean, I what a debate I kind of don't want to get into because I don't know the answer. Um, because it's just one of these things a back and forth between between both sides. But I think the the image you outlined is about as accurate as a as an image as I could outline. Actually, I I mean to me, I when I think of the riots, I I just think chaos, um, chaotic scenes of of people. Like you know, because the, the, they went on for days. I mean, these, these weren't a case of they rioted one night and then that was that. You know, the, the Detroit and the New York riots go on for 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 a good four or five days, I believe it is each time, and a lot of people get killed in the crossfire that have nothing to do with the riots. You know, like houses are fired into by the by the by the National Guards, and you know, for example, they'll go through two doors and kill they kill a mother that has nothing to do with the riots. Um, and a lot of, you know, you, you can debate how innocent the rioters were anyway, like depending on what your sort of political viewpoint is. But there's a lot of people who aren't involved at all who end up dying or being seriously injured or lose their businesses because they're burned down or all these kind of things. You know, it, it's just a it's just a chaotic scene. Um, and, and I think that's true for pretty much all of the riots. And I think that idea of kind of chaos, I mean, that's still, I was reading an article in the, the Guardian recently commemorating the 50th anniversary of the, the riots in New York. And there's still, as you point out, this debate and this back and forth of, you know, who did what, what happened, all that kind of thing. You know, there's a persistent image that, that many African Americans took advantage of the riots to loot shops. But then again, there are also quite serious accusations that members of the law enforcement community also were engaging in looting and theft and various other forms of criminality on their own part. Take it, they were taking advantage of the riots for their for their own ends as well, and to settle scores, you know, especially with people that they maybe couldn't arrest, but they take the advantage of the the riots to go and settle these scores that they want to sort out. Yeah, I mean, well, my sense is that. You know, to to whatever degree, they're all true. Um, in terms of you know, and it, because a riot, in a sense, you are now you are now without law. Um, you know, that's that that's the whole point of the being in there to try and you know they've sort of get both sides 
will have bad apples. Bad stuff will go on. There's firearms. There's the ability to to loot stores, as you say. So, so I I imagine that there are, you know, at minimum kernels of truth in uh, in in both those sides. Um. So what's the so what's the political fallout of all of this? Because I mean that's one thing that we've been really focusing on is the kind of the the issues of of civil rights and the war on poverty and Johnson's Great Society programs. What is the the political fallout from the long hot summer of nineteen sixty seven? What are politicians from all parts of the political spectrum? What are they saying and what are they doing? Yeah, and just, just before I tell you that answer, I just wanted to say I thought your point about Vietnam was very good. Uh, I think that you know the, the Vietnam as many many commentators equate the sort the sort of feeling of society battling out of control, a society influenced by the violence going on with, in Vietnam. Um, with the violence going on at home, and they sort of play off each other. Um, but the, what the in terms of the political fallout, it really forces politicians off of the fence. You know, what do you? What is your response? Are you someone that wants order? Do you want to send in, you know, law enforcement? Do you want to ramp up security? Do you want to increase harsher crime laws? Do you want to lock up as many black power advocates as you can, or are you for social justice? Um, you know, do you want to spend money on the cities? Do you want to abol- abolish housing segregation? Do you want to abolish job discrimination? What you know, what side are you on? Now, politicians will do their damnedest, um, and I've read many of them trying to do it to to try and have a foot in both camps. But it's always obvious what they actually sympathise with, um, by, by what their actions are are afterwards. And what happens at first? is that the, the, the politicians who are for order seem to be winning out. You know, the one, they sort of, they, after Newark and Detroit, the House of Representatives begins slashing funding for urban programs, denounces the rioters in harsh, really, really harsh rhetoric. Um, and, it, and it looks like the war on poverty, um, which we've already discussed was often aimed at African Americans in cities is about to be abandoned. It's up for renewal in 1967, and commentators think it's done. And then the tide begins to turn, and the tide partially begins to turn on the back of a sort of debacle we mentioned in the Johnson podcast, um, where. Uh, Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats denounce a Johnson proposal to um, spend $40 million on uh, getting rid of rats from the nation's cities. And it's famously dubbed the civil rats bill. Um, And and as I said, you can go back and listen to our podcast to hear about that. And they they making a lot of sort of, they make a lot of humor out of it and basically taking the mick out of Johnson for even proposing it. And what happens after that is, Johnson really steps up, gets really aggressive in his rhetoric against these uh, these sort of order proponents, sort of denounces them, you know, and uh, and it begins taking the mick out of their position, basically saying we spend more protecting our our livestock from rats than we do, you know, human children. Um, the press really begins to pile on, um, and then that that NBC documentary that, that begins this um, that begins this podcast comes out. And, and, and things begin to slowly start to change, and the justice, the social justice, uh, sort of impulse prevails in the end. And here you have back to the sort of group of moderate Republicans I mentioned again, 
um, who exercise a sort of outsized influence on this and help save the war on poverty um, from from the axe. And this very much flies in the face of sort of historians who think the Republican Party would sort of was captured by conservatism in the 1960s after Barry Goldwater, whereas my research sort of shows that it's a lot more complicated than that. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, you it's hard to tell exactly what it is that turns the tide, but it could be that just, you know, the better angels were winning out, or it could be the fact that, that people were worried that if we don't do something here, then maybe the riots are going to get worse. But that's a bit of an unknowable. So does this, I mean, does this suggest in, in a sense that the, I mean, the rioting actually worked? I mean, on one hand, it provokes a backlash from from white America, but also in a sense... It you know, allowed you know more concessions from Johnson's government, allowed the continuation of spending on important, uh, or particularly urban programs. So, so did it? Did the rioting actually serve a useful function in the end? In the short term, yes, I think so. Um, I think without it, um, going into the, po- the the before the riots. People thought that a lot of those programs that were going that you know they tried to slash anyway might have been might have been for the chop whether those had, whether the riots had happened or not that the you know the sort of revived conservative coalition of Republicans and Southern Conservative Democrats was going to kill them and obviously they didn't they survived for a while um, there was money spent on the cities um, you'll get the Civil Rights Act of 1968 which is supposed to get rid of housing segregation although it's not the strongest piece of legislation ever. But in the long term, I would argue that they don't um, work. Um, Poverty and urban programs essentially become code words for programs for African-Americans and minorities over the next 50 years. They still are in many ways. If you say you did a program for the city, um, you know, that still rings the same bells that would have rang at the end of 19 and the 1960s. And white Americans becomes less and less likely to vote for politicians who are advocating such measures. Um, in 1968, and, and sorry, in the summer of 1967, Johnson appoints a commission to study the, the the riots, which is you know what any decent politician does. They appoint a study and try and kick it into the long grass. Um, and in Britain, we appoint a royal commission. You know, it's just what you do. And uh, and in 1968, the, the commission comes back and reports. And it's called the Kerner Report after the, the Otto Kerner, who was the, the sort of Illinois governor who led the thing. And it, its headline-grabbing conclusion is, America, quote, is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And recommends huge spending on the cities, like a sort of Marshall Plan, essentially, for America's cities. As soon as it's released, LBJ puts it in a drawer and it never sees the light of day because he knows that, you know, he's a very pragmatic politician. He knows its recommendations are now politically unrealistic, that white Americans just don't want anything to do. Um, You know, the vast majority of white Americans don't want anything to do with it. And then in 1968 election, you have Richard Nixon and George Wallace. You know, if you combine their vote, they win a sort of huge share of the vote in 1968 both stressing law and order. Um, although Nixon's message is a wee bit more nuanced with his, with his he sort of appeals for something called black capitalism. Um, 
for the rest, for the next 30 years, sort of 30, 40, maybe even now, like the conservative Republican message on not funding, uh, not giving funding to sort of impoverished communities has been in the ascendance when it comes to American politics. And partly that stems uh, from the riots of the 1960s. So to conclude with a, a totally non-problematic set of questions that aren't in any way complex, do you think that the, the causes of and responses to the long hot summer of, of 1967, do you think there are lessons there that still need to be learned in terms of what is happening in America today for for law enforcement, for politics, for all of, all of these things, the way that African Americans are still treated, and you know, and are still confronted with a disproportionate amount of of police violence and and discrimination. Um, I don't think that's that complex a question. <laughs> that's that's quite an obvious one. I mean, yeah. Um, but I what are the other other lessons? Do you think we can take from sixty seven? Was the Kerner Commission essentially right? God, now you're asking me a big question. Um, I genuinely don't feel qualified to answer that question. Um, what I will say is, I maybe it's just because I am a, an optimistic person. I think things have got better to an extent. The one, I'll just cite one basic example um, is the fact that. In the 1960s, um, the, when the riots were taking place, the police forces that were fighting them, the National Guards that were fighting them, would have most likely been almost all white. Um, whereas nowadays, most police forces um, are mixed race um, and make more of an effort to reflect the sort of racial makeup of, of, of the societies they're serving. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I think you only have to look at the clips that mobile phones have enabled enabled us to see um, over the past five years to see how far America's got to come. I mean, I don't think it's an exclusively American problem. Mind you, you know, it's not like the rest of the world doesn't suffer from racism or anything, but, um, you know, this is an American history podcast. So I... There are... I, I think it's really... I think one thing that is interesting about it which just is hard to see now is there was to an extent a bipartisan response to the riots. Um, there was moderate and liberal Republicans and moderate and liberal Democrats came together to try and pass and saw and try and help the cities in a way that just doesn't, wouldn't happen now. I mean, it's almost impossible to see now. I mean, not many Republicans were willing to volunteer their assistance after riots in Ferguson and all the other um, problems that they came about with, with the sort of, you know, Charleston shooting, for example, and and everything. So so maybe it goes back to a time where, where government seemed more responsive in a way it no longer is. Um, and, and I guess that's where I'm going to stop before I completely blabber and innocently. Um, no, but... no, that, that seems like a, a reasonable place to conclude. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. That was a, a fascinating insight into the, you know, the causes and the politics and uh, of the long hot summer of 1967 and the ways in which, you know, politicians from both sides 
you know responded to these you know this major as you know, urban crisis uh, in the United States. So thank you very much for that. Uh, it was my pleasure. One final question to you. Yes. Uh, out of interest, as someone who's not a, a scholar of domestic policy, largely, um, would the, were the race riots prominence in your consciousness about the 1960s? Because to me, they get completely overshadowed by the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement to the point where they're almost forgotten. But I wanted to see what you thought of that. Well, I mean, here we get into the fallibility of historical memory. I, do, I don't recall hearing about them growing up. What I did hear about growing up was their equivalents in the United Kingdom, uh, and especially those that were happening in the 1970s and the 1980s, you know, when I was growing up. So now living in, uh, in Liverpool, in fact, just near Toxteth, there were similar, you know, events that happened in in Toxteth in the early nineteen eighties. So they they were part of this kind of these issues that the the long hot summer of nineteen sixty seven raises were were kind of part of my consciousness growing up, but they were not something that was ever really mentioned. I certainly wasn't aware of them until studying history at university. So. Uh, it wasn't something that, that was talked about or discussed. But then again, that could just be the, the flakiness and the increasing unreliability of my own memory. And next time for our 40th episode of the American History 2 podcast, <laughs> indeed, uh, our guest will be Jeremy Young, who will be talking about his research into the role of charisma for American politicians. So very much looking forward to that. So thank you, Mark. Thank you, Malcolm. And goodbye to all of you. Cheerio. Something happening here But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Are getting so much resistance From behind the time we stopped Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down What a field day for Stop, hey, what's that sound?